Welcome to Brief Encounters. For all of the horrors that have come out of this pandemic, one thing that it has done is raise the profile of global health law. Today I have with me an absolute rock star in this field, Professor Lawrence Gostin. I could fill our entire time with his credentials, but he wrote the textbook on the subject of global health. So suffice it to say, he is as top-notch as you can get. So I'm just going to dive right in. So Professor Gostin, you've advised governments throughout the world on their COVID response. What are some of the key takeaways when it comes to various governments' understanding of the legal levers available to respond to pandemics? Well, first of all, you know, governments should abide by the rule of law and respect human rights. That's job number one. And the most important human right is the right to health. And so governments need to follow the science. They need to follow the public health. And we've seen all too often with nationalist leaders from Bolsonaro in Brazil to Donald Trump in the United States and Lopez Abrador in Mexico, that you know, populist, nationalist governments can be horrific um, for human rights and the right to health. So that's one thing that's important. The other is is that you know we've had an unprecedented breakdown in global solidarity, um, in the idea that you know we're all in this together, and that we have to follow international norms. So. There's been widespread non-compliance with the international health regulations. Some countries like China have refused to allow the World Health Organization to even find out the origins of SARS-CoV-2. And during the Trump administration, he made the most cataclysmic, disastrous decision in my history uh, in global health when he threatened to withdraw from the World Health Organization in a fight uh, between China and the United States, which put WHO in the middle. Um, And then I think I would be remiss in mentioning the most important problem that exists today, which is the unconscionable allocation or misallocation of COVID vaccines um, with high-income countries like the United States and UK and Europe vaccinating most of our populations, including boosters and now um, five to 11-year-olds, um, while the vast swath of the world, particularly in sub-Saharan Africa, don't have enough vaccines to vaccinate and protect even their, you know, a small percentage of their population. And you know this is the International Year of the Health Worker, and I wrote the WHO's Health Worker Compact on the rights of health workers. And I'm ashamed to say that, you know, in many places around the world, we don't even have enough vaccines to immunize frontline health workers, nurses, doctors, community health workers, and that's just, you know, a, a moral catastrophe of catastrophic proportions. Thank you. So I wanted to unpack this idea. I I read your article for JAMA on one year into the COVID crisis and what went wrong. And this idea of the collapse of global solidarity. I'm really struck by this concept because it highlights our collective failure to really understand that infectious diseases don't respect borders. 
Can you talk a bit about this in terms of the international health regulations, which I think even a lot of international lawyers in other areas beyond health are not really aware of? No, they're not. You know, the actually the, the very first treaty adopted by the WHO was the predecessor to the international health regulations called the International Sanitary Regulations. Um, and they, they adopted that when the organization formed as the first UN specialized agency in 1948. After the SARS epidemic, which was itself catastrophic, although nowhere near what we're going through now, WHO revised the international health regulations to make them stronger. But the IHRs, as we call them in the field, have been really neglected. There's been widespread noncompliance. Uh, countries just don't abide by WHO recommendations. Countries have slapped on travel bans, travel restrictions. They've retreated into their own sovereignty and nationalism. And they're really uncaring about the rest of the world. And so it, later on this month, uh, at the end of November, there's going to be an historic session, a special session, the first special session of the World Health Assembly devoted to a single item. And that item is the possibility of adopting a new pandemic treaty. The U.S. position is that it wants to reform the IHR. WHO and Europe would like to develop a separate treaty, and we'll see what transpires. But there's a very strong global consensus that international global health law failed badly, uh, as well as the governance of this pandemic, and that mutual solidarity really did completely collapse. The article does discuss how that state sovereignty limits the World Health Organization's ability, especially in terms of information sharing. Um, so that lag that we saw in actually informing other countries that um, this COVID crisis was coming was impeded by that. Aside from what you see as the, the new regulations potentially coming out of the November session, do you see any other structural changes within the World Health Organization resulting from the COVID crisis? You know, that's a really good question, Jill. I mean, the right now, what's on the table uh, at the World Health Assembly is a whole series of options, a political declaration, which is likely, some soft law, like um, resolutions or something like the pandemic influenza preparedness framework, which I could explain, mm -hmm. but applying more broadly to all pathogens the revision of the IHR or the adoption of a new treaty. But WHO itself does need reform. You're absolutely right. They've been powerless. And of course, a new treaty or a new uh, or reformed international health regulations could give them the powers that they need. For example, the ability to independently verify state reports. But beyond that, WHO urgently needs funding that's commensurate with its global health mandate. Uh, right now, WHO's full budget is around the size of one large U.S. teaching hospital uh, and one quarter of the amount that CDC has. So we need to give WHO the, the power and authority it needs. We need to give it the political backing, and we also need to give it the funding. All three of them have been woefully inadequate during this pandemic. And 
and WHO has has not been able to lead as effectively as it should have been able to. Well, I think that connects closely to the state sovereignty issue with not just kind of the funding, but also giving the WHO certain types of power that some states may not want them to have. Do you think that at least kind of the economic burdens of the COVID crisis might tilt some states in favor of relinquishing some of their power to the WHO? That's a great question. You know, I I just finished a book called Global Health Security for Harvard University Press. And, and the thesis of the book is that we tended to lurch between complacency and panic and then back to complacency. And so the question is, is will all of the seismic disruption of COVID, all the deaths, all the economic collapse, all the mental suffering, will that finally lead us to do something that's bold? The answer is, is that we really don't know. So far, we've not met the moment. Um, the G20 is meeting right now, and they've just set up another task force. They haven't done anything. The World Health Assembly is really going to be conflicted you know, with China, the US, and Europe, all taking different positions. And low and middle income countries have been left behind with vaccinations. So I'm not sure, you know, this is an historic opportunity and we should make this crisis into an opportunity to really fundamentally change. Whether or not we will, we don't know yet, but we're trying. The O'Neill Institute at Georgetown Law is leading a global consultation for the World Health Organization to try to, you know, push ideas, more bold and radical ideas for this new global health law landscape following uh, the COVID pandemic. Um, you had mentioned the pandemic influenza framework. You wanted to talk a bit about that. Yeah, I mean, WHO has a very innovative, soft instrument called, we call it the PIP framework, pandemic mm-hmm. influenza preparedness framework. It's not a treaty, so it's not formally binding, but it's actually a, an international agreement Um, that's signed by member states and by companies and academic laboratories. And they agree to share pandemic influenza virus specimens and genomic sequencing data in exchange for providing equitable access to vaccines, diagnostics, and treatments. And it's, it's been not perfect, but it's really innovative and it's enforced by international contract law. When I served as the senior advisor to UN Secretary General after the Ebola epidemic, our commission recommended that the PIP framework be expanded to include all pathogens, including coronavirus pathogens, and also to make it an international and legally binding treaty. So that's also on the table. And one of the options can either do a soft law with some teeth like PIP and apply it more widely, or we can even uh, try to negotiate a virus sharing and equitable equity sharing agreement that's wider than pandemic influenza. Right, thank you. You had mentioned, of course, the vaccine inequity, um, and I think both the COVID crisis and of course, moving on to vaccines and how you could count on one hand the number of people that were vaccinated in some countries versus 
the United States, where we're still trying to encourage an additional, what, 15 to 20% of our, our citizens to get vaccinated. Do you think that the pandemic has elevated the global conversation about inequality in healthcare as a human right, especially the vaccine disparities? Well, I hope so. Um, you know, in my opinion, even before COVID, the prevailing global narrative was one of extreme inequity. There were health inequalities, there were socioeconomic inequalities, and basically a feeling that large swaths of the population, the marginalized population, women and girls, racial minorities, the very poor, had been left behind um, while the super rich got more rich. That's really been amplified on steroids during the COVID-19 pandemic. And Tedros, the head of the WHO, who I know very well, I think he's been the moral conscience of the world, said, you know, that this, the vaccine inequity is the greatest moral catastrophe of our lifetimes. I think he's right. And I do think it's raised the profile, but it hasn't changed. We're still facing, you know, vague promises from the United States and Europe and the G7 and the G20. Um, we don't have a plan on the table. And so, you know, basically the same paradigm is not working now, which is basically that, you know, once the rich have satisfied their demand, they'll give charitable donations to the poor. And I think that low income countries are fed up with charity. The donations never come soon enough and they're never ample enough. And they want the power and the capacity to make their own vaccines. And so there's a big push to change intellectual property protections, um, as well as a push for technology transfer so that particularly mRNA vaccines can be produced in regional hubs in Africa, India, uh, Latin America, Asia, and the like. Wonderful. I hope that we are moving there to more of a, an acceptance of health as a human right. Um, I know the conversation in the United States has only changed slightly since the passage of the Affordable Care Act, but I think with the COVID crisis and recognizing that we really are all in this together, I think that some of that conversation might be moving forward. So I have one final question. I, I've been quoted in the press probably one one millionth the times that you have. But I'm guessing that some of these quotes that are taken from really long interviews with you, um, where you say really important things, the quote that makes it into the newspaper is not what you actually wanted them to get out to the public. So I would want to know what is the most important thing you would want the newspapers to quote when you sit down with a reporter and you're trying to get a message out to the public with regard to COVID and the, the global health issues that have emerged from this crisis? You know, I think that the one thing that I would say beyond everything is really picking up on what we just talked about. You know, I think for the last half a century, the model for global health assistance has been a charitable one. Countries like Russia and China use their global health as geostrategic levers. You know, for example, China has pushed countries in exchange for its vaccine to not to recognize Taiwan or to give it access to rare earth metals. Whereas the United States and Europe and Scandinavia 
have used, you know, their global health assistance, you know, as Hillary Clinton said, as smart diplomacy, but it's charity. And I think that we need a new paradigm for the future. I think the time for, you know, wheeling and dealing and using vaccines or drugs uh, that are life-saving as leverage has to be over. And the, the time for beneficent rich countries to be charitable to the poor should also be over. What we should be doing now is literally empowering countries around the world to make their own diagnostics, therapeutics, vaccines, to give them the capacity to do it, to transfer the technology, to reduce the intellectual property barriers and the export restrictions and allow countries to help themselves and not have to wait hat in hand for the beneficence of some rich country like the United States. I think that's what I would really want people to know. Great. Thank you. And with that, thank you for all of your work globally. And as someone who is on Georgetown's campus and knows that our COVID response has been in large part due to your expertise um, and you're working extremely long hours to keep us safe. I'd like to thank you personally um, for everything that you have done. Thank you. That's such a kind thing to say. And, you know, being part of the Georgetown community has meant so much to me. I think our vision of law is not the, is just the means and justice is the end is the really important thing for Georgetown's contribution to the world. Great, thank you.